This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Senate confirmation hearings for President Trump's Supreme Court pick start March 20th. As you probably know, Judge Neil Gorsuch is a Coloradan, and we're curious if he'll get Senator Michael Bennett's vote. The Colorado Democrats spoke with me Wednesday from Washington, D.C. Before we get to the Supreme Court, I want to ask you about the Republican House plan to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act unveiled this week. Senator, I realize it's on the House side, but I wonder if there's anything you can work with, a starting point in this proposal. Well, I think it sounds to me like they're having a hard enough time getting their own caucus together on the bill, which isn't surprising because they've kept it a secret until now, and now they say they want to pass it through both houses of Congress in two weeks. I think they're going to have a huge problem with Republicans on that uh, before they get to the Democrats. Uh, Let's see, that was an answer about politics. Let's talk about the substance of what they've offered and whether you think there's a starting point within. I don't think so. I mean, to me, what they've proposed is a $600 billion tax cut for the very wealthiest Americans that's masquerading as health reform. And the only effect that's going to have on people in Colorado is to make it harder for them to get health care rather than easier. I have long said that there are things that I'd like to change about Obamacare, and, uh, but I would never have thought we'd be going in the opposite direction from where we need to go, and this bill clearly does that. When you say the opposite direction, care to expound on what you mean by that for individual sure, sure. I think one of the biggest flaws of current health care is that when you're living in rural parts of Colorado and there isn't competition, you've got one insurance provider who's charging you an exorbitant amount of money for insurance, and then you've got a very high deductible on top of that, so the insurance becomes useless. Somebody says to me, quite rightly, I think, because up there, why are you requiring me to buy something that's not of use to me? I think that is a very legitimate critique of the current health care bill. What this bill will mean if it goes through is that it will be even harder for people in rural Colorado and all across this country to afford their health insurance, especially if they're between the ages of about 40 and 50 before they have the benefit of being on Medicare. I think that Republicans would say this potentially increases competition such that rural offerings would increase. What would you say? They might say that, but that's completely imaginary. I don't don't think that is reflected in the bill, reflected in the legislation, or reflected in reality. I think what they've produced is a political document to try to fulfill the the promise that they made over and over again when they repeatedly voted to repeal Obamacare in the House. And I think what your listeners are going to see over time, if we have time, if they're not able to ram it through... um, that the legislation is just not going to hold up. And, and Ryan, I don't take any pleasure in that at all. We do have things that we could fix, like what I mentioned earlier, to make insurance more affordable to people in this state, to be able to have it be more predictable. And, um, and unfortunately, this bill just doesn't do any of that. To Judge Gorsuch, will you vote for him? Uh, I've said that I'm waiting until uh, we have the hearings, and then I'll make up my mind. I know that you had a a conversation with him. Was there anything in that discussion that stood out, good or bad? It was a positive conversation. He's been. He talked about his experience as a judge, and uh, we talked about Colorado. 
can you get any more specific about something that gave you insight into his no, view uh, of the? No, I think I think it's important for us to have the hearings, and then I'm ha- happy to talk about the decision that I reach. What questions will you be interested in asking him during the hearings? Well, one one thing I'm going to be interested in is um, is what his view on. President Trump's uh, assault on the judiciary is. I think the president has called judges that he's been dissatisfied with so-called judges. I'm going to be very interested to hear his thoughts on that. I'll say that uh, Gorsuch, in a conversation, I think, with another lawmaker, and this got reported, did express some disappointment in what he was hearing from Trump about the judiciary. Do you want to hear something more explicit? I, that was in a conversation um, behind closed doors, yeah. and so I'd like to have my own conversation about that. I'd like to talk to you about the role. By the way, I was in the White, this was very disturbing. I was in the White House when the press called that discussion to the president's attention. And not only did he wave it off, he he used it as an opportunity to attack the senator with whom uh, uh, Neil Gorsuch was having the conversation. Very disturbing. I'd like to get a sense of how you see your role as as a Democrat and in a minority party. Do you see that as a sort of obstructionist role to oppose the majority party? Do you see it as a role of compromise? And, you know, I I know that you have some on the left who are saying this is not an administration to compromise with. Well, I feel very strongly that people send us to Washington to get things done. And when we had a president that was um, in my party... I worked hard with Republicans to advance legislation, pass legislation uh, that was important to Colorado and to others, reforming the FDA or reforming immigration. We obviously didn't get that through the House of Representatives. And I don't expect that to change. I expect to continue to work with Republicans to try to uh, make progress on behalf of the American people. But where the President of the United States attacks the judiciary, an independent branch of the government, where the President of the United States says that says that journalists... Um, um, are not covering terrorist acts uh, properly when journalists are having their are being beheaded uh, covering a story to make us understand better what's going on in Syria and better what's going on in ISIS. Um, I, I think I have to have my voice heard. And in an era when people are beginning to talk about the truth that's been reported, edited content that's on the the front pages of newspapers in this country, and they're referring to that as false news. I think all of us need to be heard at this moment. This is an assault on our democracy. It's an assault on our democratic institutions. And in my view, it has absolutely nothing to do with Republicans and Democrats. It goes far beyond that. There has been a lot of pressure on members of Congress to host town halls. Uh, Any plans to do that soon? We're going to do a number of town halls in in April, I think, yeah, in the, or in the next few weeks. In the next few weeks. And can you say where those might be or, or those are details to come? We're working on that now. Democratic Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado speaking with me Wednesday. We have a request in to talk with his Republican colleague, Cory Gardner. Senator Gardner did share his thoughts on the GOP health care proposal during a telephone town hall. He was one of several Republican lawmakers from Colorado who chatted with constituents last night by phone. Here's some of that. The first question comes from Warren Van. Do you no longer support repeal of Obamacare? If so, what took you so long? I've been trying to reach you on this issue for years. 
Thank you very much for the question Warren submitted online. I absolutely support uh, the repeal of Obamacare and its replacement with something that's going to work. Uh, it's very important that we have an, a system in place that is better than the Affordable Care Act. If you see what's happened in Colorado, people who lost their doctor, uh, people who lost their insurance policies because they were canceled under the Affordable Care Act, uh, and people who uh, could no longer uh, afford to go to the doctor because their deductibles were so high under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, in fact, it doesn't matter if it was a Republican president elected or a Democrat president elected in November, a Republican majority in the Senate or a Democrat majority in the Senate, we would be here today discussing a replacement of the Affordable Care Act because, uh, as Bill Clinton said during the campaign, uh, the Affordable Care Act is the craziest thing. Uh, and so we see a lot of unintended consequences that have if, if impacted people across Colorado in a negative way. Obviously, there are people who have benefited, and that's something that we have to take very seriously, uh, something that we have to get right. That's why this is a very important uh, conversation to have tonight on how we can make sure that the replacement plan works better than the Affordable Care Act. Now, to add some perspective here, Senator Gardner mentioned many Coloradans had their plans canceled. But the Colorado Division of Insurance says that doesn't mean they lost insurance altogether. Quote, that's what's so often missing from any statements about plans being canceled. Their current specific plan may be going away, but they have options. In fact, more Coloradans have health insurance than ever before, according to the Colorado Health Access Survey. Before Obamacare, the uninsured rate here was more than 14 percent. Today, it's about half that. Of course, the quality and affordability of that coverage varies widely. Here's a bit more from Senator Gardner. I believe we can come up with a plan, Democrats and Republicans working together, uh, to put in place uh, reforms that will allow a competitive marketplace when it comes to insurance, uh, to reduce the burden on employers, making it more uh, likely that they will offer uh, coverage and allow individuals who wish to seek their own insurance better options to choose for themselves what works for them. Uh, I have joined uh, several of my colleagues in expressing uh, desires and concerns to the majority leader that we make sure the Medicaid transition, if that's what happens, uh, is done properly, uh, giving the states the full flexibility they need to make smart decisions to drive down the cost of care, increasing the quality of care, making sure that we continue to provide uh, the opportunities for people to have a better system than the Affordable Care Act. Republican U.S. Senator Cory Gardner from his telephone town hall last night. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Starting a successful tech business is hard enough. Imagine doing it where there is spotty internet access and where capitalism is a foreign concept. Those are some of the extra challenges for entrepreneurs in Cuba. Several are in Boulder now for a crash course in tech startups. Bernardo Romero-Gonzalez is part of the group, which is organized by John McIntyre y Salazar. He's a former Goldman Sachs banker who was born in Cuba. Nice to have you both on the program. And John, how strong is the entrepreneurial spirit in Cuba? And where does it come from in a communist regime? (laughs) Well, thanks, Ryan. Well, first of all, Cuba is really uh, an entrepreneurial nation by necessity in the sense that uh, you know, daily life can be difficult, um, especially in the last few years. And so everyone has to be entrepreneurial to some extent. But um, in terms of the types of businesses that um, like the Bernardo is running, that's really something that's sprung up much more in the last uh, three or four years. There's a series of economic reforms which uh, allowed 
uh, people to sort of be, become self-employed in a number of specific categories. And computer programmer happens to be one of them. So, And Cuba happens to have a uh, surplus of computer programmers. Uh, and uh, so that's been one of the most uh, vibrant uh, areas. Mm. So computer programmer is something of a recognized profession that's allowed by the government, would you say? Yeah, it's one of the 201 uh, licenses, specifically 201, that are allowed uh, forms of self-employment. And in general, that list does not have many uh, professional or skilled services on it. It's uh, The list is largely kind of subsistence and low-skilled type, uh, type employment. But uh, computer programmer is one of the dozen or so that actually allow you know, Cuba's highly educated and skilled population to uh, go into business on their own. Right. We should say that it is a highly educated population. And I, I do wonder if, to some extent, the regime has forced people to get creative, to be entrepreneurial. Um, I don't know if by, uh, by intention, but uh, that's, that's certainly been the, the, the result. Um, mm-hmm. You know, wages um, average, you know, $20, $25 a month. And, you know, in the days when there was a ration card that actually had uh, a number of important, uh, you know, nutritional and, and other uh, you know, matters with it that it would come with it, that the people could make ends meet. But um, the, the wages have not risen in the last uh, 10 or 15 years in real terms. And the ration book has been largely cut back. So uh, people have to scramble day to day, really, to, to make ends meet. Bernardo, your company, based in Havana, is called Cubazon. It's like Amazon for Cuban-made products, from food to toys to jewelry. And I understand that your primary customers live outside of Cuba, uh, but often have family there. Why is that your primary audience, your primary customer? Well, we are focused in the Cuban diaspora, all the Cuban people that live out outside of Cuba that want to to send all some some items to the to their family and the, their friends. Focus maybe first focus in in Miami, in Spain, it's two places that has a lot of Cuban people that have family and friends in Cuba and who want to feel a connection to the island and and maintain that. So the diaspora, you said. Do you have regular internet access? Because I, I imagine it would be very hard to build a website without being able to get online consistently. Um, well, in our offices, we have the internet uh, connection. And now in Cuba, um, Cuba has uh, a some uh, Wi-Fi spot, well, uh, many places with uh, Wi-Fi. And in our offices, we use this connection to... Um, to work, but in our my home on, or in the uh, our supplier offices doesn't have a internet connection, and we create a smart solution to resolve this problem. Imagine that I'm going to to solve the product, but I don't have con- internet connection with the supplier, and we create a, a smart solution for uh, staying in, in, in communi- have communication yeah. with our supplier through or by a mobile communication. I see. So instead of relying on the Wi-Fi, to which you do not always have access, yeah. uh, you connect with your customers, your suppliers. Uh, via the phones, I suppose, a okay. different a different method. And um, given the restrictive internet access, I, I do think that some listeners are surprised perhaps to hear that Cuba is so educated 
uh, with a lot of trained engineers, a lot of computer scientists. Yet I think there's very little funding available for entrepreneurs, a lot of interference from the state. John, what, what is the climate like for private business in Cuba? I mean, while they've allowed these 201 categories of self-employment, uh, they're not really, they're not facilitating in other respects the, the growth of these businesses. I mean, most fundamentally, the businesses like Bernardo's, they can't incorporate, so they can't form legal entities. The licenses are just given to individuals to allow them to pursue certain activities. So not being recognized as legal entities means, obviously, they can't uh, raise funding, get a bank loan, unless it's done on, on a personal basis. So that's a big one. Um, other problems are uh, the government controls you know, the imports and exports. Uh, Bernardo's uh, uh, Cuba's own ideas is a very clever way to, to sort of skirt that. But in general, other people can't uh, import or export. Now, of course, programmers can export their software uh, because that can be done digitally. So that's another sort of loophole through through that uh, government um, you know control on imports and exports. But there's and the final thing I'll just mention is that there's no wholesale market. So for those dealing in mean, restaurants and um, retail, et cetera, uh, they have to basically compete for you know their supplies and their goods uh, in the same places that, uh, that the general population does unless they have people carrying it in in suitcases. Huh. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about a delegation from Cuba of tech entrepreneurs who are in Colorado – they're uh, specifically in the Boulder area this week. And I guess I'd like to know more, John, about why you've brought these three companies from Cuba to Boulder. Sure. Well, um, I'm responsible in overseeing an entrepreneur training program on the island called Cuba Emprende, which we've been running for five years. So most of what we do is training uh, these small business people on the island. But from time to time, we undertake initiatives like this to bring entrepreneurs uh, from Cuba to the U.S., and this um, was part of a competition that we announced last year called 10 by 10,000, in which we um, solicited proposals from all over the island uh, to pick 10 of the most promising uh, tech-enabled businesses, meaning businesses that have an important tech component, have engineers on their staff, et cetera. And it was a complete experiment. We didn't know what, would, what the reaction would be, but we actually managed to get 88 applications from across Cuba. We selected 10, um, and three of those are in Boulder at the moment. Uh, the others uh, went to uh, Miami and to, um, and to Palo Alto and had their two-week visits there. I'll say that, Bernardo, this is actually your fourth time in the United States, I think all since President Obama opened up relations with Cuba. After spending some time here, uh, do you want to move your business to the U.S., bring your business here, or are there advantages to being in Cuba? Well, my idea is, is staying in Cuba. I think that Cuba is a very good place to to begin the business, to start up, because it has many opportunities. Uh, well, in this case of Cuba Son, maybe we need to to take um, part of the business in USA or in another country, because our customer is going to be uh, outside of Cuba. No. But the, the idea is um, develop the business in Cuba, and help for another private business to grow up and improve their, their business. So you'd like to keep most of Cubazón in Cuba, but you could see some parts of the business perhaps outside. And again, this is a sort of Amazon for Cuban-made products, toys, food, jewelry. 
John, is there something of a political message that this program sends to the new administration about maintaining what are still fledgling business relationships between these two countries? Um, well, our timing uh, is turning out, I think, fortuitous in that respect. Certainly, this wasn't uh, intended as a political message, either in its uh, original idea or its timing. But as it turns out, I hope it is sending a bit of a signal um, that there is a vibrant private sector in Cuba with a lot of very smart, very lot of ambitious people that are uh, trying to build businesses like, like Bernardo. And um, if there are moves by this administration to uh, roll back uh, some of the Obama initiatives, such uh, as travel or remittances or other things, uh, th- that will precisely hurt this, uh, th- this uh, struggling and, and still small private sector uh, much more than perhaps it will even hurt the government. So um, I think trying to highlight the fact that there is a, there is a real private sector in Cuba that needs uh, our support and needs some of the initiatives that have been you know, undertaken in the last few years is an important uh, message at this point. Bernardo, do you have a difficult time finding workers, finding enough employees for your business to grow? No, I see no difficult. Cuba, Cuba has a lot of uh, a person with very good uh, skill and very good uh, knowledge in the tech uh, area. Mm-hmm. And I see it's not a problem for Cuba Son and for me. Uh, find a very good tech uh, person for create a smart solution for the business. Okay, so you feel that you have that. And is the education support system supporting that, supporting the kinds of workers you need? Are the schools delivering those kinds of people? Yes. Cuba, Cuba has uh, many universities working in the in the tech area and um, more I think more than four thousand of, of students finish their uh, career in tech uh, in informatic, no? And in, in we IT. have we have a lot of a lot of person with the the skill for working this idea or another. It's not only my idea uh, working in Cuba. Many, well, 10 winners of the 10 by 10K uh, has a very good uh, tech solution. So another public official, Colorado's governor, Democrat John Hickenlooper, traveled to Cuba recently. He thinks the island can be a good export market for Colorado goods. So I'm curious about potentially the other way around here briefly, John, besides trying to export entrepreneurship um, with these visits right now, what Cuban products or services do you think are in demand in the U.S.? Well, I think software is um, software development is, is a clear one. I mean, given for the reasons Bernard just mentioned, um, and there's a shortage of programmers all over the world, there happens to be a surplus in Cuba. And software, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the few products that can be, uh, in effect, exported or imported into the U.S., both legally and uh, just practically. So that's, that's a clear focus. Um, you know, much of the rest of the private sector uh, in Cuba is focused on the tourism trade, uh, so that's quite domestically focused, obviously. Yeah. Um, there, there are other private sector goods, the types of goods that uh, Bernardo is, is fulfilling in Cuba, that if the export... Um, if they were enabled to export, they they could. I think um, like handicrafts and clothing and things like that. But for the moment, that's uh, that's not possible. Well, I want to thank you both. So John McIntyre Salazar leads a program to bring Cuban entrepreneurs to Boulder, also Silicon Valley and Miami. He oversees the largest entrepreneur training program on the island and worked with the Obama administration on U.S.-Cuba policy. Bernardo Romero Gonzalez 
He's one of the Cuban entrepreneurs visiting Boulder. For more on his company, Cubazone, you can go to cprnews.org. Still to come, Kimball Musk of Boulder saw the Internet as the first great opportunity in his life. He says food, real food, is the second. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A near-death experience on a tubing hill was the push for our next guest to reconnect with his passion, using food to make the world better. Kimball Musk owns the kitchen and next-door restaurant concepts, which he started in Boulder, where he lives. And he's on the brink of a big expansion, 50 new eateries by 2020, and well outside Colorado. Musk blends two concepts you don't normally think of together, chain restaurants and locally grown food. And Kimball, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. You broke your neck on Valentine's Day 2010, paralyzed for a little while. You needed a risky surgery. Before the accident, you'd had a real passion for food, um, but had been firmly in the tech world, along with your brother Elon. You're still active in that, I should say, sitting on the boards of SpaceX, Tesla. But how did how did the accident refocus you in that love of food? You know, it was a... Uh really hard to describe how powerful um, having a restart to your life is. It, it truly is a restart when you're faced with paralysis. I was uh, paralyzed on my left and um, getting worse every single day. And then, you know, they did a surgery and I woke up the next morning and I could walk. It was just uh, impossible to describe how powerful that was for me. And so the restart was about uh, to say really to give myself permission to do what matters to me. And um, what while I was part of very exciting companies, uh, what mattered to me was food and um, helping the world get to a, a, a real food culture. Uh, we had been doing our restaurants for a few years, but no scale. You know, we would uh, I think to your point around local. How do you scale local and uh, was I just blocked it out? I was like, you just can't do it. And um, and I, I want to ask you about that term, real food. Sure, it's one you use a lot. Sure. What does it mean? Yeah, it's a term coined by uh, the author Michael Pollan, and the ter- the term is basically food that you can trust to nourish your body, the farmer, and the planet. And the key word there is really trust. If you can trust the food you're eating, and unfortunately in today's world, you really don't have a lot of trust in the food system, and we shouldn't. It's, it's, quite, it's quite bad for us. Um, it's food that goes through the industrial method, and it's very high in calorie, very low in nutrition. And instead of feeding the world, it makes a lot of people obese and, di- and diabetics, which of course is a disaster for them, and of course economically a disaster for the country. So uh, real food is actually taking a completely different tack and saying, wait a minute, Let's have food that nourishes our body, that the farmer is happy to grow, and that is more sustainable for the planet. And this is what you want to scale up in the form of these restaurants. I want to say that you actually trained as a French chef before moving to Boulder. Uh, You did open eventually the kitchen, and now they spin off next door. So five locations so far in Colorado. You can get... A burger. Actually, we have seven in, in Seven. Okay. I've, <laughs> here I am underestimating. The growth, the growth is so rapid. Uh, get a burger, a salad, 
uh, locally sourced ingredients, and you do plan to expand the next door concept. So as I said, opening 50 restaurants by 2020. Uh, Interesting that your focus is the Midwest and the Southeast in particular. Yeah. I call it the heartland. So basically, we go to the part of America where they love us. I mean, we opened in Memphis, and the response has been extraordinary, even more popular than our Boulder or Denver restaurants, which are very popular. Um, But they also, they don't have a, they have some great food culture, but the real food restaurants are few and far between in those communities. So we're excited for the the opportunity as well as the impact we'll have on on local farmers and bringing real food to those communities. Places like Iowa, Tennessee, Arkansas. Yeah. Uh, it occurs to me that there's some overlap there between the places you'd like to open real food restaurants and where a lot of the industrial farming, as you call it, occurs. Sure, that's exactly right. Now, we actually are, so we work in uh, in Memphis, and we're surrounded by cotton farmers, which are, which are not even food at all, uh, although most corn farmers are not farming food either. They're farming ethanol and so forth. But the the what we're able to do with, with these farms is have them, these are very big farms, so they'll take a 35,000-acre farm, and they'll make 100 acres growing real food, and then they'll grow to 250 acres, and they'll open 500 acres. We personally are working with the local foundations to do a 208-acre organic farm on our restaurant's property in uh, in Memphis. Is the point that wherever a restaurant opens, you also have to have your own farming operation or very strong farming relationships? We don't want to do our own farming at all. Okay. Uh, we do it only because in that particular case, it was the only way to make it work. Mm. We love supporting farmers. Our our mission is is to bring real food to everyone, and we're going to do that through restaurants. We also have our learning gardens where we teach kids about food. Um, we have a, a, a startup that trains entrepreneurs about indoor farming to do to do real food farming that way. We don't want to get into farming. We want to support farmers. What are some of the other challenges of scaling this nationwide? I mean, do you, do you want to be as big as Applebee's or Fridays? Our goal is to bring real food to everyone. So uh, I think they would be thinking small. Okay. <laughs> Those major chains would be thinking small. And, and so what, what are some of the other challenges of, of scaling up in that manner? Uh, well, I think the most important challenge for us is people. And I mean it in terms of, you know, we want to find great farmers, we want to find great managers, we want to find great servers, uh, line cooks. We cook from scratch. We do it the old-fashioned way. Um, and we need, pe- we need people, really good people. So we're always looking for great people. We're opening a new restaurant called, called Hedgerow in, um, in Cherry Creek. Right, this was just announced. Uh, in fact, just announced today. And that's about a wood oven f- restaurant. It's just wood oven roasted real food. And it's a phenomenal thing to learn how to roast in a wood oven and cook in a wood oven. And that's all about people, getting great people to, to, join the, to join the team. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Kimball Musk, yes, of that Musk family. He lives in Boulder, and he and his partners started the Kitchen and Next Door restaurant concepts, which they hope to scale up big time. You know, I want to say that a lot of Colorado restaurateurs have this focus on local ingredients. There's Alex Seidel at Fruition in Denver, Eric Skoken at Black Cat in Boulder. Great guy. Heck, the Mercury Cafe in Denver has been doing this forever. Um, It also made... Potager as well. Potager. Phenomenal local restaurant. Long lists and and well outside the metro as well, some of these. Uh, But I think of another Colorado startup, Chipotle. Sure. And, you know, again, big scale and a focus... As, as they tell it, on uh, fresh and often local ingredients. Do, 
Are you in some ways in reinventing the wheel here? Did Chipotle? No, well, I actually work with Chipotle, so I uh-huh. sit on their board, and um, they are the greatest uh, real food chain out there in terms of fast casual. The difference between us and Chipotle is we're a gathering place for generally millennials, but millennials also bring their kids or their parents or their grandparents. But the, we're trying to recreate the gathering place that we've kind of lost along the way. Um, while Applebee's and TGI Fridays still exist, they don't really serve that community very well. We want to be the gathering place for millennials. uh, And our next-door restaurants in particular are just amazing places to sit, gather with your friends, and eat real food. Okay, recently the kitchen, the name, has been embroiled in a legal fight. Sure. You say you have the trademark rights to use the name, but Wolfgang Puck objects since uh, he he feels it's, you know, pretty generic. He says he has the right to use it in a Chicago eatery, The Kitchen by Wolfgang Puck. Will that at, at all be an obstacle, obstacle to growth? I mean, I'm just really sad about it because Wolfgang and I know each other and he knows what we're doing. And we're doing a lot of really good work, especially with our nonprofit, working with kids and food. And, and The Kitchen name is means a lot more than just a restaurant. And it's pretty sad. So for me, I just I just want to talk to him and sit down and chat with him. And since he's decided to do that. He's cut off all communication. So it really is a bizarre and strange, sad situation, to be honest. Is making a trademark of the name The Kitchen, though, uh, a strange decision, given that's such a prevalent term? Um, no, I think it's actually great. I think we, we, we've we've become known as The Kitchen in so many ways, not just the, not just the restaurant, but the work we do beyond that. So I, I think it's a, it's a very powerful name and, and trademark. So you mentioned uh, that this has a nonprofit element. The kitchen community has built gardens in uh, hundreds of schools. 350 now. Yeah, yeah it's pretty amazing. I think 50 in Denver. Yeah. Yeah, another 150 in Chicago. They're in Memphis, Pittsburgh, Los Angeles. How do they differ from gardens that may have been in schools for years? No, absolutely. I love that question. So school school gardens have been around for 100 years. Right. Um, they have been very impactful. They they help kids connect to food. They help uh, teachers learn, teach outside, get kids connected to you know improve their test scores. The problem with school gardens is they were usually in the corner of the schoolyard. They'd often uh, the facilities department would put a fence around them. They'd be hard to maintain, and they would often fall apart just because they're made out of wood. You know, just normal reasons, not not even uh, uh, operational reasons. But operationally, they're quite hard to manage. You've got to have a garden team. You've got to have People who are dedicated to it for for a long time, teachers would retire, parents, kids would graduate, just normal things. And we created a truly scalable version of a school garden, and it's called a learning garden. It's built on the playground instead of in the corner. It's right next to the playground. Um, it's a it's a raised up. It's made out of recyclable polyethylene, which is very a very modern day uh, technology used for playgrounds. It's a it'll last forever basically. Um, it's raised up, so it's ADA compliant. Uh, it's super easy to teach in. Teachers teachers are trained to teach science, but actually they use it to – it's a beautiful day outside. Let's go read a book with the kids, and it's such a wonderful place to do that. Uh, the kids love to play in it. It serves both as a, as, a, as a classroom but also an extension to the playground. So because there's no fence, we don't allow any fences around, around them. Kids can enjoy them during recess and, and after school. And uh, the other thing that's amazing is – because it's this beautiful permanent addition to the school without a fence around it, parents can use it in the afternoons and weekends. So we get one in seven parental involvement in a school, which is a very high number because these gardens are so easy to use and parents love to get involved. 
and the question of tending to them long term and making sure that there is yeah, sustainability. Yeah, we we actually build a local team. So in Colorado, we have an awesome team of garden educators, a regional director that helps continue to raise funds for the learning gardens, as well as uh, garden maintenance folks that partner with Denver Public Schools and and other school districts to make sure they're maintained and looked after. Just like you'd look after a basketball court or you look after a classroom, uh, they need to be maintained and looked after. But it's not that expensive. It's It's just about having the right systems in place. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, Kimball Musk is with us from Boulder. He is uh, one of the founders of the restaurant concepts The Kitchen and Next Door, which are on the precipice of some major growth. I do want to talk about another project. Heaven forbid you should just have one project, Kimball Musk, <laughs> um, uh, called Square Roots. Sure. So the company invests in startups focused on growing fresh fruit and vegetables in cities. Yeah. And the idea is to do that in shipping containers. Yeah. How does that work? Well, the idea came to me from, I, I was a, when I was 19 years old, I, t- I signed up for a painting franchise where I painted houses. And you get a neighborhood and you paint houses, you run a business, you get a small business loan, and, and you do it under a, under a brand. It was called College Pro. And while I never wanted to be a painter, um, it taught me how to be an entrepreneur, and it gave me the, the, the basis to, to, to build the businesses that I have built since then. In fact, since I was 19 and I took that opportunity, I've never worked for a single person in my life. And so it's just been this amazing gift that I got being an, learning how to be an entrepreneur in a very straightforward business. And when I found out about these storage containers where you can grow the equivalent of two acres of greens inside a storage container, it's about a $100,000 top-line revenue business. Not a big business, but if you're... 18 to 24 years old, and you're in school, it's about 20 hours a week you dedicate towards this business, and you can earn anywhere from 20 to 40K for, for the year. It is really a business, so you could even lose money if you don't know what you're doing, but you sell direct to consumer. You, uh, uh, we train you on how to hire and fire people. We train you on how to run a P&L, how to sell door-to-door, or in many cases, we sell to, to desk-to-desk. We actually sell into office buildings. P&L profit and loss statement. Pardon? B&L being a profit and loss statement. Yeah. Yeah, P&L. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. Sorry. And um, and so they learn how to run a business. Now, they'll do it only for a year, and then they'll graduate, and they'll go do something else. But we've trained them on, on what food is, how to grow real food, and how to run a business. So isn't that exciting how many people will unleash into the world uh, uh, with a real food background and entrepreneurship training? Uh, so we couldn't be more excited about it. It's also a great business because we're building a, the Square Roots brand, direct-to-consumer brand. That is going to be, I think, the one of the new exciting brands of the of the real food future. And why the why the trailer? Is that just because of why the of, container? Yeah, uh, exactly. Is that just because of the capacity constraints of the city? No, it's actually because it, it's a business in a box, literally. Oh. And you need to make sure that you for these young kids, you keep the business as simple as possible. What about growing protein in the city, though? Um, we don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are some ways to do whole that. Whole other challenge. There. Whole, whole other challenge, exactly. Why don't we wrap up with the question of trust? So you've brought this up. Sure. Yeah. That people should have more faith in their food. Yeah. What does that mean in terms of, of changes that need to occur in your mind? Well, I actually think trust is the currency of our generation across the board, not just in food. Um, we have been uh, sold up a river, I think, in across many industries and as the internet's come along, we've discovered that a lot of these businesses are not as uh, they're not as good of a citizen as we'd like as we had hoped they would they were. And the same applies to food. So for us, 
bringing trust back into the food system is critical so people trust the food to nourish their bodies, trust the food to nourish the farmer, uh, trust the food to nourish the planet. And we bring bringing trust back into the system is what gets me up in the morning. And uh, I hope we have a future in a, in a few years where all of us, uh, wealthy, middle class, uh, um, lower income, all of us, trust the food that we eat that to, to look after ourselves. Lower income, I think that's a critical point. Yeah. Because there's often an association between good food, real food as you call it, and expensive food. Yeah, I, I think that's a total, total crock. I think that, that if you want to roast a chicken and have some vegetables with your instead of a family of four, that's going to cost you about 10 bucks. If you want to go to McDonald's and you have a fam, family of four, that's going to be about $20, $28. So it's not about money. I definitely think we've lost... Um, a connection to food. We lost the understanding of cooking, and so we have to bring that back. Uh, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Boulder restaurateur and entrepreneur Kimball Musk is expanding his next-door restaurant concepts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado State University's Emmanuel Amagbo is playing the best basketball of his career. Despite tremendous loss, the death of his parents, niece, and nephew last year. To thank the CSU community for helping him through, he calls this his thank you season. And the season could be extended. CSU is playing to earn a spot in the NCAA tournament. I reached Amagbo at the airport as he headed to Las Vegas for the Mountain West Tournament, where CSU is the second seed. And uh, Emmanuel, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me. Your family members were caught in a house fire in your home state of Maryland. A GoFundMe campaign raised more than $100,000 for you to help with the funerals, housing. I just wonder when you met people who donated what, what you said to them. I just try to send extra texts when I came back to Colorado, send people cards, just telling them thank you. And the only way for real to show it is just to come out this season and uh, give it my all. Making a postseason will bring a lot of joy to the CSU fans and just the whole city of Fort Collins and everybody in Colorado. I want to say that you heard not just from the CSU community, but uh, from the CU community, the University of Wyoming, these are normally your rivals on the court. Yeah, everybody had my back. It's, it's funny because we was playing at Air Force the next day, and I got a, a standing ovation. I wasn't really into it, but I just wanted to go out there and just play my hardest that day. Hmm. Why did you go to the basketball court, as I understand you did, in the early morning hours after you got the phone call about the house fire? It was kind of like a century where I always go when things are not going my way. And I think I've seen the football players working out. Like, I was crying, but they couldn't really see me. I was just there, and I think one of my coaches came to get me from the basketball court. The football players were working out on the basketball courts that morning. Yeah, yeah, they was running on the basketball court. Where did you get the idea to call this your thank you season? I, I understand that gratitude was really something that your father instilled in you. Yeah. yeah, just showing gratitude and always saying thank you when people do you a favor because you don't know 
how long that will go. And people that did that favor to me and I showed them gratitude and made them feel like they did something in a young man's life. And it, they, somebody would probably do that to their kids too. To pay it forward. Do you ever find your mind yeah. wandering in games thinking about your family? In games, my mom, my dad, like my niece and nephews are always with me. So I don't really think about much. I always focus in the game. But before the games, I always wish they could see me play, especially senior night. I wish they could be there. But my sisters and my brothers was there and my family and my friends was there. So I just couldn't. I couldn't really. I got emotional, but I just figured, like, everything is for them. So. It is what it is. Like, I just learned to grow up and grow with it. Like, this will be with me for the rest of my life. Yeah, did, do you think that this forced you to grow up faster in some way? Yeah, it definitely forced me to grow up faster because a lot of my bills and stuff, my parents used to pay it. But now I'm, like, almost forced to, like, pay my bills by myself now. The fact that I'm about to be out of school in less than two, three months is just things are moving fast and I'm growing fast as a young man. I will say there was an emotional game recently the gym was really loud and you hit a three-pointer at the last second to beat San Diego State. Fans rushed the court and afterwards you said you were unconscious when you took the shot. That your parents... Yeah. And, and niece and nephew forced the ball to go in. You said it couldn't have only been me. What were you feeling? What, what prompted you to say that, to know that for yourself? I, I knew that because I was 0 for 3 prior to the threes I took. The ball is not even supposed to be in my hand late clock if we need a three. It's just a coincidence that the ball was at my hand at that time. So I was just kind of forced to force up a shot that went in and it was great to see everybody ran down the, the arena. It was great to actually see CSU fans actually happy again for the season. We just had a lot of ups and downs and we're just doing it by just winning games and just staying humble and believing in Coach Lair. Your sisters survived the fire and I wonder how you balance now being something of a leader for your family and also pursuing a basketball career. I know I was going to have the responsibility either now or later on in my life to just make my family go farther and farther and just put my last name on the map. The tragedy kind of had my name out there, and I felt like I played a lot better after the tragedy because I felt like I'm playing for a lot more now, and I feel like I have a lot more to lose, so I don't want to let my parents down. I don't want to let my nieces and nephews down. Because those are the, the promises I made to them. Emmanuel, may, may I just say that I'm really surprised by how together you are. I mean, given the loss you've suffered. I mean, it's just my dad and my mom always taught me to just be patient, always put God first, and just, like, everything is going to be fine. Wherever you at, we're going to be with you. Like, they gave me a necklace. My, my parents always told me to wear this necklace they gave me that, if I have the necklace on, they're always with me and nothing will ever go against me. And that's what I just believed in. And my mom and my dad was very spiritual and my family is. So I just kind of believe in everything they tell me. I'm guessing you'll be wearing that at the tournament. I always wear it. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Safe flight. 
Emmanuel Amagbo is a senior forward at Colorado State University. The men's basketball team competes this week in the Mountain West Tournament to earn a spot in the NCAA Tournament, which starts next week. Finally, we want your input on higher education. We're going to bring together some college presidents in Colorado, and we wonder what you'd ask them. Maybe it's about affordability, what you get for your money, if a degree is worth it. Email news at CPR.org. News at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio.